question is, why in the world did you pick the book of Numbers for our next series? Uh, I know that this is not a common book or a very popular book in terms of sermon studies, but if you're visiting with us or new to our church, what we typically do is work through books of the Bible. And as we look at the Bible, we know that God is the one who is writing this story from beginning to end about who he is and who we are. Uh, we see consistent themes about God going throughout the Bible and manifesting themselves in different books of the Bible. And so it's good for us to come to a book like Numbers and see God kind of like you come to the illustration of a diamond that has many faces to it or facets to it. Well, you come to God's word and you look at him in different books of the Bible and here we're going to see how God is relating to his people in the book of Numbers. Second, uh, we think that we are benefited by being a church that does not simply just stay in one portion of the Bible, but studies all of the Bible. And that dovetails with what I just said about who God is. So recently, we just worked through the Gospel of Mark. Mark is the story of Jesus' life, how he's the Christ, the Son of God. And we move from what would be called narrative writing in the Gospel of Mark to now let's go to the Old Testament and look at law for a season of time. And then we can go from law to epistolary literature like Paul's letters. And then we can go to the Psalms and read poetry. And so God gives us various portions and different genres in his Bible. And it's good for us to again study all of the Bible. Third, we know that God's word is inspired. It's given to us by God and it's profitable. So there are good truths and biblical principles for us to glean in the book of Numbers. So we're approaching this as God's word, anticipating that we'll see God's glory in the book of Numbers and realizing that it's good for us to study all aspects because God has given us his word. Okay, now for the next six weeks, we'll be looking at Numbers. And so far, here's how I've been working on it in my study over the last couple of weeks. Uh, we're breaking it down into six sections. And scholars are debating on how numbers should be broken down, but this breakdown seemed to fit well. And it's a breakdown according to geography. In other words, here's Israel coming out of Egypt. And in the book of Numbers, you see them at different places. So there are three locations that we're going to see in numbers, where they are camping here, camping here, and camping there. Then there are also portions where they are on the move. And so we're looking at them traveling through different sections. And so we will look at them based on where they're at geographically in the book. And that pretty much boils it down to six sections, five sections technically, but we'll make six out of it. How do we get to the book of Numbers? It's important for us to see that there is a history, a backstory to the book of Numbers. Um, we start with the book of Genesis, which is about God's creation. And in this book of beginnings, there is the beginnings of the nations as well, the nations of the world. And among these nations is a man named Abraham, 
God comes to Abraham and makes a covenant or a binding agreement with this man covenant with this man named Abraham. And in this covenant, God says, I am going to make you a father of a nation. And from you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then God promises Abraham that this nation that is coming from Abraham, this nation is going to inherit a land. And so you're anticipating from the very beginning of Scripture, God, how are you going to fulfill your promises coming to Abraham, making this promise? Where's the nation? And when are they going to go into the land? Well, as you come to the end of Genesis, we see 70 of Abraham's descendants down in Egypt. The book closes, and then the next book, Exodus, opens up 400 years later. And what's taken place in those 400 years is that those 70 descendants of Abraham have multiplied a family tree And now they are a ragtag group of slaves down in Egypt. They have formed or populated into a nation. God remembers his covenant. God calls to mind his covenant that he had with Abraham. That's how Exodus opens up. He remembered his covenant. And he takes this ragtag group of people and says, it's in you. I promised Abraham, it's in you that I am choosing to glorify myself and be worshipped. And so he takes this group of people who are slaves and he redeems them or brings them up out of Egypt by bringing in those ten powerful plagues, the last one being Passover, where God said, Pharaoh, let him go. He said, no, okay, I'm going to bring my presence into Egypt. And those who had sprinkled the blood over their doorposts were passed or blessed. They were protected from God's judgment. Those who had not put the blood over the doorposts, God brought judgment into their lives. And everybody knew that on Passover, God was present among his people. And so God took that 10th and final plague broke Egypt, if you will, and redeemed his people out and brings them through the wilderness and you follow them in Exodus and he brings them to this mountain called Sinai. And it's there at Sinai that this ragtag group of people, they were just slaves a few days ago. God provides for them the law and forms them into a nation and he makes a covenant with the nation there And says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And the people say in response to God, everything that the Lord has said, we will do. They enter into a covenant relationship with him there at Mount Sinai. Leviticus. God is going to be worshipped among his people. And so at the very end of Exodus, we have the beginning of God's presence among his people in the tent or the tabernacle. Leviticus is showing how the religious system among God's people is going to work. And Leviticus outlines the priestly system, the sacrificial system, and this tabernacle and all of its furniture and how God is going to be worshipped. Okay, so... 
You have Abraham, a patriarch, promise about a nation coming. Here's the nation being brought out of Egypt, Leviticus, the story of worship. And now numbers, we're moving into numbers. They're at Sinai. And this is going to be a journey up to the land that God has promised. So a couple of things that we see here or that we should observe here, just beginning in verse 1. Um, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. You say, man, you got me hooked now. <laughs> Let's see what this book is all about. All right, a couple things. A couple, outline, a couple points for the outline, I should say. Number one is going to be that God keeps his covenant and that's chapter one, more or less. And then chapters two through 10, God gives his commandments. God keeps his covenant and God gives his commandments. As we approach numbers here, chapter one is a reminder about his covenant. For God to enter into a covenant, he is saying, here is what I am obligating myself to. Here is what I'm committing to do. And we're expecting God to be faithful to what he has said. As we go through the book of Numbers, you're also wondering, is Israel going to be faithful to what they have committed to in this relationship? It's like a marriage coming together. Husband says, I'm signing up for this and I'm agreeing to this. Wife says, I'm agreeing to this. Will the two keep their commitment and their covenant with one another? As we go through Numbers, Looking at the people over here, there is going to be a contrast between two generations. There's going to be an older generation that's 20 years and older, and they are going to be characterized by murmuring, rebellion, complaining, and disobedience. They forsake the covenant. There's going to be a second generation that comes in that's 20 years and younger, and they are going to keep the covenant. On God's side over here, looking at the covenant, we're going to see how he is responding to his obligations, and we are going to see God is faithful over and over and over again. What God has said, he will do, which is encouraging for us as the people of God. You can always trust God in what he says. So when we come to chapter one, we're seeing he is a covenant-keeping God. Couple characteristics or couple observations now, just at the beginning. Verse one says that they are in the wilderness. The Hebrew Bible actually calls numbers in the wilderness. It doesn't call it numbers, that came later. But the Hebrew Bible calls it in the wilderness. The wilderness is this foreboding place. It's where Jesus went to be tempted. It would be a place of trial. And it's going to test God's ability to keep this nation as a nation. We also know that the tent of meeting is there. That's where God is choosing to dwell among his people. Third, we see the timing in verse 1. You notice that it's the first day of the second month of the second year. In short, what you need to know is that year one began at the exodus they went out to Sinai and they've been at Sinai for one year in the wilderness. And right away, when you see that, 
you know, okay, God has been faithful because if the wilderness is a foreboding place, a place of trial, God has kept these people alive for one year. And then God goes on to tell Moses here in chapter one, he says, take a census of every male, 20 years and older, who can go to war. And so all of chapter one is a counting of the various men in these tribes who are able to go to war. Skip down to verses 45 and 46. It says, so all those listed of the people of Israel by their fathers' houses, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war in Israel, all those listed, here it is, were 603,550. These are just men of war, and they've been alive in the wilderness now for one year. It tells us this at the very beginning. Is God going to be faithful to his people and is he going to form the nation? The nation that he promised Abraham. The nation that he pulled out of Egypt. Is he going to be committed to his covenant? And the answer that you see right away at the beginning of chapter one is God is a covenant-keeping God. He is keeping his people. Now continuing to the end of the chapter, there's a section on the tribe of Levi. Just some quick Bible information about these tribes, and this will help us here as we move into chapters three and four in a little bit. There are 12 tribes that we're used to hearing about in Israel. Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. And those 12 sons became the 12 tribes or the 12 people groups in Israel. He had a son named Joseph. What you don't hear as you read through the Bible, you don't hear people saying, I am of the tribe of Joseph. You just don't hear that. Why is that? Joseph had two sons, all right? So you see 12 sons here. From them are coming 12 tribes. Joseph had two sons. His two sons' names are Ephraim and Manasseh, okay? Those become tribes of Israel. So if we have 12 sons, Joseph's not one, but his two sons are, that moves us to 13. But you don't hear about 13 tribes. You hear about 12 tribes, okay? Now what takes place is, when they enter into the land, the land is divided up among 12 sons. And so those 12 sons get portions of land. Who's the 13th that doesn't get any land? It's the tribe of Levi. Good job. Levi doesn't get any land because Levi from him are going to come all of the priestly workers. And they're not going to be in charge of settling a land they're going to be in charge of taking care of all of the religion and the tabernacle and eventually the temple. In chapter 35, God gives them provisions. There are going to be 48 cities dotted throughout the land that the tribe of Levi is going to be able to have. So they're going to be religious workers all over the land and then in Jerusalem, of course. So some of... Just, it's Bible knowledge for us, especially when we start looking at the land. Here are the 12 tribes. The 11 sons, not Levi, but you've got Joseph and his two kids. Those will, be, those will make up the 12 tribes. And then you've got Levi, who's a special tribe, who's going to be in charge of religious duties. Okay, so 
the end of chapter 2, we have actually some commands about Levi. When we look at Levi, what is the responsibility? Verses 47 to 51. But the Levites were not listed along with them by their ancestral tribe. For the Lord spoke to Moses saying, only the tribe of Levi you shall not list. And you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel. But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all its furnishings and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings and they shall take care of it and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he's to be put to death. So clearly, here is the responsibility and role of the Levites. And then down in verse 54, it says, they did according to all that the Lord had commanded them. So, very beginning of chapter one, I just want you to see this. The nation is forming. The nation that God has promised to provide. And God is being faithful to his covenant. Okay, chapters two through 10. Chapters 2 through 10 is about God giving his people his commands. God gives his commands. And we're going to look at how he gives his commands now in these chapters. First, it's how the camp is to be arranged. It's how the camp is supposed to be arranged. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 says, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their father's houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. So as Israel gets ready to travel through the wilderness, God is giving them specific arrangements on how the camp is supposed to be set up. With this camp, the 12 tribes are going to divide into four sections. And in these four sections, you're going to have them sectioning themselves around the tabernacle. Three tribes on each side of the tabernacle. In chapter 2, it tells us, here's the camp of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. They're going to be on the east side of the tabernacle. On the south side, Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. On the west side, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. And on the north side, there's Dan, Ashtar, and Naphtali. Now look at verse 34 of chapter 2. The arrangements have been spoken. Thus did the people of Israel according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So they camped by their standards. And so they set out each one in his clan according to his father's house. All right, so in your mind, if you can look out into the wilderness... You can see a tent in the middle. That's the tabernacle. And you see that there is orderly arrangements for how the people are being camping, camped, if you will, around the tabernacle. There's another description that's given for us here about the arrangements. In chapters three and four, we're going to narrow our attention into the tabernacle and we're going to see, wait a second, there's there's another pattern close to the tabernacle. And that is the way that the Levites are arranged around it. In chapters 3 and 4, we see that Moses and Aaron and their families are camped on the east side of the tabernacle. That's where the entrance to the tabernacle is. Levi, the tribe of Levi, 
has three clans in it, the Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Merarites. And the remaining of those three, Moses and Aaron on the east side, the remaining of those three are going to camp on the south side, on the west side, and on the north side. And so you have the tabernacle being surrounded by the religious leaders. Okay, so just very simply, what do we take away from this? God is arranging the camp. God is arranging the people around himself. He is at the center of the camp. We're going to see the centrality of God among his people. And just visually, as you read through these, you can't help but just notice God is at the very center. Okay, so that's command number one, the arrangement of the camps. Second set of commands are the purity laws that are given in chapters five and six. Look at verses two and three. He says, command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp that they might not defile their camp. For what reason? Notice again, the focus It's the camp in the midst of which I dwell. That's the key phrase. God dwells in the camp and it must be clean. He goes on to the next set of purity laws in verses 5 through 10. This is how people should confess their sins. So we're talking about morality. Verse 6, he says, speak to the people of Israel. When a man or woman commits any sins, any of the sins that people commit, and here it is, by breaking faith with the Lord... All right, so all of the morality is around the Lord. If somebody breaks faith with the Lord, that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed. So there's a moral centrality that's here. There's a third set of purity laws here at the end of chapter five, and it's one of the most unusual portions of scripture in the Old Testament. It is the purity law involving the test for adultery. So if a man thought that his wife had committed sexual immorality with another man and he was wrestling with jealousy, did my wife just commit sexual immorality with another man? And he's got this nagging thought in his mind. He could take his wife and bring an offering with him to the priest. The priest would take some dust that's on the floor of the tabernacle and throw it into some holy water. The woman would be there. She would unbind her hair, hold on to the offering that the husband had brought, drink the water that is bitter, and take an oath. Now look at verses 19 through 22. The priest shall make her take an oath, saying, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you are under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray... Though you are under your husband's authority and you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people. When the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell, may this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, amen and amen. I mean, that's kind of bizarre for us to come to this. But we're asking, why is this given here? Well, where is Israel going? 
They're going into the land of Canaan, and what are the Canaanites characterized by? Their worship of these gods and goddesses that involve all kinds of sexual promiscuity. And God is saying, I am going to protect the sanctity of marriage by giving these commands. And so this law protects the sanctity of marriage and the sexual union of a husband and wife, but it does so in such a way that is centralized around God. You go to the priest, you make this oath with the Lord, and only the Lord knows what is truly going on here. So if guilt is there, God will bring the judgment for it. Now you say, wait a second, how come only the wife gets this? Why is it always the wife in the Bible? Okay, Leviticus 20, verse 10. This process sets off a chain reaction. Leviticus 20, verse 10 says, any man who is lain with another woman other than his wife, any man who commits adultery, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be stoned to death. So here is like this whole thing. It's not like guys can run around and just be like, well, whatever, you know? Um, this is going to set off a chain reaction where God is going to bring his judgment. And so if anything, this is going to help a husband know, okay, my jealousy, my insecurity, my fear, I can bring it to the Lord. And the wife can know, hey, it's God who judges us. God will bring to light that which is sin. So here at the end of chapter five, you have this commandment for there to be sexual purity, and God is at the center of this command. He's involved in every bit of it. All right, chapter six. A fourth command, fourth purity law, is about the Nazarites. What's a Nazarite here? Well, let's look at verses one through eight. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. Okay, so the Nazarite is separating himself unto the Lord and he's saying, no more grapes. Secondly, verse five, it says, all the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow long. All the days, that's the second thing. Here's the third thing. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister, if they die, shall he make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. So here's a Nazarite. Somebody who says, I want to be extra close to God. Okay, no grapes of any kind. Don't ever cut your hair. And you can't go near or touch a dead body, not even those who are related to you. So we look at this and we're like, okay, what's the purpose of this? Not everybody can do this because you certainly need undertakers. Not everybody can do this because you're going to be eating, drinking grapes along the way. Think of somebody in our society, in our Christian society today, who says, 
you know, for the next three months, I just believe God is calling me to be close to him. And I am going to set aside four hours of every day to read the scriptures. And I just need this in my life to kind of purge myself from what's going on in the world and be separated unto the Lord. And we would all look at that and say, man, that is going to be a great exercise. I can't do that at this season in my life, but I know that when I see this person spending four hours in the word every day, that person is going to be growing closer and closer unto the Lord. So when the people of God saw the Nazarites, long hair, not drinking any grapes, not touching dead people, it's a reminder that as a community, we desire this. We want to be close to the Lord. They have a unique season in their life or God has a unique calling on their life to do this. Of all of these purity commands or characterizing all these purity commands, it's all about God. Life in the camp is all about God. When we think about our culture today, and we think about making things right among people, confessing our sin, making things right, oftentimes it's not about God, it's just about, well, this is going to make business better. When we think about special commitments that people make today, like the Nazarite vow, it's not about a commitment unto God, it's about, well, I just want to know myself better, or I want to get stronger, or I want to be more adept at things. Um, sexual things. People don't look at sexual fidelity to their spouse in our world today as something that's honoring to the Lord. In all of these things with the people of Israel, all of these commands, if you will, their eyes are continually focused, each one, focused, focused. This is all about my relationship to God. Okay, chapter seven and eight. We have God's commands concerning offerings and religious leaders. Offerings and religious leaders. Chapter 7, uh, we'll skim through this quickly. We're told how each of the 12 tribes brought identical offerings to the Lord at the tabernacle. Look at verse 13. And his offering was one silver plate whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, one golden dish of 10 shekels full of incense, one bull from the herd, one ram, one male lamb a year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs a year old. Now, look what happens at the end of the chapter. Go down to the very end. Verse 89, all of the tribes have brought an identical offering. They're worshiping the Lord with what they have. Verse 89, it says, and when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. All right, so what's going on here with chapter seven? The people are saying, we want to honor the Lord. We want to bring our tithes. We want to bring our offerings. We want to bring our sacrifices. This is where our heart is before the Lord. And then Moses, the representative, goes into the tent of meeting and with people having hearts that are just focused on the Lord and worshiping him, now God speaks to them. Again, what you see happening in these chapters 
is everything that they're doing in life, this is not just like a Sunday thing for them, everything that they're doing is like tunnel vision unto the Lord. Okay, moving on, chapter 8. We're looking at the Levites again. How are these Levites going to be set aside? Well, as we move through here, verse 7 says, Thus you shall do to them. Cleanse them. Sprinkle the water of purification on them. Let them go with a razor over all their body. So this is opposite from the Nazarite. And wash their clothes and cleanse themselves. Okay, so here's the religious leaders. They're going to be cleaned up, shaven completely, washed. Next, in the, in the chapter, two bulls are going to be offered for the Levites. One's going to be a sin offering for their sins. The other one's going to be a burnt offering. A burnt offering, when that bull is slain, is basically a consecration offering, saying, okay, we are consecrating ourselves to you. In verse 13 of that chapter, the Levites are given back to God as a wave offering. So Aaron comes to these Levites, and literally the leaders are the offering. And, and Aaron says, okay, Lord, these individuals belong to you. Whatever you have for them, however you want them to serve, a wave offering, you waved it before the Lord saying, this is yours. And now he's taking these Levites and he's saying, they are yours for your work. All right, look at verses 20 and 22. Thus did Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the people of Israel to the Levites according to all that the Lord commanded Moses concerning the Levites. The people of Israel did to them, and the Levites purified themselves from sin and washed their clothes, and Aaron offered them as a wave offering before the Lord, and Aaron made atonement for them to cleanse them. And after that, the Levites went in to do their service in the tent of meeting before Aaron and his sons as the Lord had commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so they did to them. Okay, again, you have to see the focus. It's all about the Lord. Chapters 9 and 10, we're almost there. Chapters 9 and 10, we're brought into the celebration of Passover. Now, Passover, the initial Passover of the plague that I mentioned at the beginning of the service happened one year prior. That was the 10th plague. It's been one year now. They're at Sinai. They're getting ready to move. They're celebrating Passover again. We won't go into all of that. We're going to see God's presence with his people. Look down at verses 15 through 18. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And at evening, it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out, and in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out, and at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in the camp. Skip down to verses 22 and 23. Whether it was two days, or a month, or a longer time, that the cloud continued over the tabernacle, abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out, but when it lifted, they set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped, and at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. Okay, so again and again, here's God's presence with them. 
And they're looking at the tabernacle in the middle. Fire by night, we see God's presence. A cloud during the day. Whenever that moved, it's time for us to move. Whenever that stopped, it's time for us to stop. This was the commandment of the Lord. Now lastly, chapter 10. We're told about two trumpets. What are the purpose for these two trumpets in verses 1 through 10? One trumpet is to be sounded as a means of preparing the people for war. Another trumpet is to be sounded as a means to prepare the people for their festivals and their feasts. Two different trumpets. Look at verses 9 and 10. When you go to war in your land against the adversary who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that you may be remembered before the Lord your God. And you shall be saved from your enemies. On the day of your gladness also and at your appointed feasts and at the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall be a reminder of you before your God, I am the Lord your God. Okay, that's chapters one through 10. And it finishes with this statement, I am the Lord your God. And when these trumpets are blasted, I want you to know, when you hear that sound, I want you to know, I am remembering you. I'm going to be there for your feasts and I'm going to be there for your protection. I am going to be there for you. When those trumpets sound, I am your God. So how should we summarize this section of numbers? Here's our big idea. God's people, God's people must worship God. God's people must worship God. In everything that we've seen in these 10 chapters, I know it's laborious and I know that there are a lot of commands, but we're asking ourselves, what is God saying about himself? What he's saying is, I will be central to my people. I will be worshiped among my people. He's leading his people in such a way that everything about their life is going to be centered around him. And when we're talking about worship, we're not simply talking about showing up to a 75-minute service on Sunday and saying, I got my checkbox marked, and now I'm going back home this afternoon, and I'll return next Sunday morning at 9.30. You get to the book of Numbers And worship is so much more than just a one-time event on Sunday morning. This is the life of the people. And the life of the people is that at the center, there's God. And when we're talking about worship, we are saying, what is worthy in my mind? What has worth in my heart? And Numbers is saying, God, You are going to be at the center. You are worth more than anything else. Therefore, you must be at the center of my life. And everything that I do in the way that my life is arranged and planned, it has to have you at the center. So illustratively speaking, if we think about our lives like the earth, 
The earth is constantly connected by the gravitational force of the sun, constantly orbiting around the sun. Different seasons, different phases. There's even poles on it in different directions from the moon. There's those kinds of influences, but constantly revolving around the sun. And here is God in the midst of his people, the blazing hot center, if you will, and all people are around him saying, yes, our disposition, our posture, our worship, the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we celebrate, the way that we go to war, the way that we do our morality, all of life is going to be about God. And that's a theme that you can pick from the book of Numbers and say, yes, here's God's heavy glory right in the middle. And here are God's people who are going to commit to orbiting around God with everything in their lives. The way that you live at home, young people, is reflective of how you either centralize God or you turn your back and you face the other direction. Husbands, the way that you lead at home is either reflecting the heavy gravity, the glory of God in your life, or you're going to turn your back and say, but I've got other dreams and aspirations. Wives, the way that you arrange your life is either going to be reflective of God's commands and God's glory and you're celebrating his commitment, his covenant keeping grace in your life or you're going to say, that's not important to me, I'm facing the other direction. As you come through these 10 chapters, you're going to be forced to say, I'm either committed, I'm focused, I am, I'm surrendered to the glory of God or there's something else in my life that is leading me and I'm orbiting around that. At the center of all things for God's people is God. And our lives and our decisions in life have to be God-centric in everything. Several examples in the Bible can't help but think of Daniel from the Old Testament. No matter what stage of life, Daniel had a posture where he was worshiping the Lord. Hey, we're gonna make laws that you can't pray. Wait a second, the glory of God is heavier than the laws of man. Daniel's three friends, we're going to make a law that you have to be focused on other things, worship other idols. Wait a second, the glory of God is heavier than the laws of men. It's the Apostle Paul, after the grace of God came into his life and after that covenant relationship began with God and Paul. Here's Paul, completely poured out for the sake of God. God is at the center. And it's him that says, Romans 12, 1, now present your bodies, present yourselves as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Why would we do this? Why would we say, God, you are to be at the center? You're worthy of being at the center. Well, just as God was a covenant-keeping God with his people and redeeming them out of Egypt and bringing them into a relationship with him and being gracious and merciful to him, God has done the same for you. God saved you from your slavery to sin, Christian, and brought you out from eternal judgment into a relationship with himself. And here we are this morning recognizing 
God, this is who you are. You are a covenant-making God. And not only are you a covenant-making God, but you are a covenant-keeping God. You said you would form a nation, the nation is formed. You said you would save me unto yourself, you're going to complete that work. And not only that, but he is an inviting God who invites you into a covenant with him. In the spirit of what Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus says, come to me, come to me. Not that, not him, not her. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. As we go through the book of Numbers, it becomes very clear that only God is going to be at the center, and only God can meet the greatest needs among his people. And for us today, we're worshiping God, and we are in one sense saying, God, I have failed in the covenant, but I want to renew. I want to come back. I need to confess my sins. I want to renew my desires to keep you at the center going into another week. We just came through the gospel of Mark, and Jesus shows us what covenant keeping looks like. He's constantly pressing towards Jerusalem, ready to make the covenant possible for us where salvation can be given to us. Feeling the pressures outside, feeling the temptations to walk away. And here's Jesus in that night when life was, that night in the garden when life was heavy and the trials were hard. Here is Jesus, the one whom we're following, saying, not my will. I'm not going to turn. I'm not going to face the other direction. Not my will, but yours be done. This is where we are. This is where God is. God is at the center of all things. And as we go throughout our week this week, we need to recognize, God, not my will. Not my will. I'm in covenant with you. You are at the center of my life. Not my will, but yours be done this week. Let's pray.